0: So as we beg- begin this part of the service today, I want to get you thinking with me on the same page. I'll do that with a question. How do you feel about change? Some of us are like the caterpillar. It's actually two caterpillars crawling across the yard one day, and as they were kind of in tandem making their way from one Part of the yard to the other, they notice a shadow that went across them and they both stopped and they looked up and just above them flying low to the ground was a butterfly. And one of the caterpillars looked over at the other one and he said, you could never get me up in one of those. Now you're going to have to stay with me today, all right? I want you thinking because I'm going to challenge you at several levels today. Matthew chapter 5. Take your Bibles and turn there with me. We'll be in verse 17 and following in just a few moments. But I want you to think about change. People have some fundamental problems when it comes to making changes. It was in the early 1700s, 1780, I mean early 1780s, that Ben Franklin and the Duke of Orleans was in a village outside of Paris, France. And... uh, There was a smoky bonfire that had been built up on a raised platform. That smoky bonfire was fed by wet straw and some oily rags. And tethered above that bonfire was a taffeta bag that was 33 feet in diameter. As the hot air and the smoke rose filled that bag, the crowd that was gathered there erupted in applause and cheering as that first balloon ascent went into the air a first step towards human flight one of the first steps in all of the history of human flight and those who were gathered there watched as this purposeful experiment paid off they were full of joy as they saw that hot air balloon go some they say now some six thousand feet into the air and the wind carried it away out of their sight They would have been horrified if they could have seen that just a few miles away when the heat of the air went away and that balloon dropped to the ground, it dropped near another village onto a farm and the locals from that area thought that it was the moon crashing full of evil omens. They took their pitchforks and rakes and shovels and went and chopped it to a thousand pieces. For one group of people, a great move forward. For another group, problems. How do you feel about change? And especially today, I want you to think with me along the lines of change as it relates to that part of your life that, for lack of a better term today, I'm going to call your religious life. Usually, when you hear me refer to religion, you can hear a negative connotation in it because I very much intend it to have one. Religion has sent more people to hell, I think, than uh, non-religion has. Nevertheless, as we talk about it today, I want to use this term as it relates to you and your expression of your Christian life. And I want to come back to the question, how do you feel about change? One of the things that I've found through the years as a minister is that when it comes to talking about change in the religious realm, uh, it's a threatening thing to people. Nowhere is that more true than we find the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 gets us into the early part of Jesus' ministry. If we were to take the time and go back and read Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4, we would find an account of the birth, and then he moves into his public ministry, in chapter 4 especially, the latter part of chapter 4, we see that Jesus is making his way through the countryside in that northern Galilee region, and he's healing people, and he's doing a little bit of teaching, and as he's doing that, the crowds get bigger and bigger, and more and more sick people are brought to him. And so at the t- by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, Jesus has a crowd that, follows him but in Matthew chapter 5 Jesus pulls a fast one on them well it's not that he's really trying to be you know cloak and dagger under the uh, covers kind of thing what he's really doing is he's taking what drew them and he's saying to them now let me change your religious reality We find that in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus takes their established religion, he breathes new life into it, and in the process of doing so, he brings a cutting-edge kind of teaching to them. Everything changes in the Jewish religious world if they do what Jesus is suggesting. And a lot of people there would have none of it. As a matter of fact, before it's all said and done, a lot of those people in the first century Jewish religious world will have their way when they have Jesus killed for what he's teaching. A lot of people don't like change. Well, I don't don't really agree with my own statement there. Everybody seems, well, okay, there are some of those weird ducks out there who don't fit this, but for the most part, everybody likes a certain amount of change. For instance, how many of you are wearing the exact same clothes you wore yesterday? (laughs) Let Let me take it a step further. How many of you plan on wearing the exact same clothes you wore yesterday and today for the next seven days? Don't raise your hand, okay? Just do yourself a favor and don't raise your hand now. If you didn't like change... While you're driving down the road and one of those people who can't read a stop, I mean a, uh, well a stop sign, but a speed limit sign, you know those who intend to go the speed limit, if you didn't like change, you'd just stay behind them and go the speed limit yourself. But you don't do that, do you? You swing around them in the other lane and you go past, because, and then you swing back, you change lanes, okay? So I'm not buying anybody's telling me that they don't like change. What we don't like is the change we don't like. The change we like is fine. So I want to come back to it now. The four or five times already I've pushed you at the point of change. And especially today, I want to push you at the point of change as it relates to how you relate to the world around you. One of the things that is true in our day, I think it's always been true, But it seems to be especially true today that Christians find ourselves at odds, increasingly at odds, with the society that is around us. We started this service this morning with a video clip that many of you saw last night as you watched the Denver Broncos absolutely fold in the playoffs. Did you catch that from Focus on the Family? bunch of kids that they put together this very short spot on national. I don't even know how much money they had to pay for the spot that they got as a commercial in that playoff game. I noticed in one of today's papers that I was reading earlier that uh, focused on the family on Tuesday of this past week. In looking at the incredible following that this guy Tebow has gotten, because of his emphasis on his favorite scripture, which is John 3.16, because of all of that emphasis and the groundswell that seems to be coming with that, Focus on the Family said, what if we put together a spot and used it in the playoffs this weekend? It's a good thing they use it this weekend and not next. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is the uprising of interest because of Tim Tebow. Now, in this circle... 9 out of 10 of us, maybe 99 out of a 100 of us, look at that. And because of what Tim Tebow stands for and who his life is and specifically who his life is wrapped around, most of us look at him and we go, all right, way to go, good job. But you know, there are a bunch of people out there, they feel totally opposite about him. Well, it's not because he knows how to win playoff games, clearly that they don't like him. It might be that he stands for something that they are diametrically opposed to. So here's what I want you to get. You're not a Tim Tebow, probably. If you are, I'd love to be your agent. But most of us are not Tim Tebows. Most of us are just ordinary people walking through life, going to work, dealing with our family, going to school, trying somehow to make a difference for God in this world. Now... I just made a huge leap. I'm giving all of us the benefit of the doubt that our motive in the first place is to honor God with our lives. But I know that that's not true for all of us. Matter of fact, some of you may be sitting in here today thinking to yourself, you know what, I'm not too sure about all this Christianity stuff. I've seen too much of it to want to buy into it. You know that one of the most searching statements of all of history comes from the Indian guy named Mahatma Gandhi. One of history's leading people, one of the top people of the 20th century. And Mahatma Gandhi once said, I would be a Christian except I've known too many Christians. So how do you feel about change? When it comes to your own personal religious life, how effective is it We've seen, and matter of fact, Wade mentioned it earlier. We've seen in Scripture the earlier part of this passage that we're about to read, thir- verses 13 and following. I'm not going to read those. We've already read them. I'll just reference them here. Jesus said very definitively to us his people You are salt. You are light. In other words, make a difference. So I want you to just stop before we even get into the Scripture part of it. And ask yourself very honestly, a pointed question: Am I making a difference for the cause of Christ? And if not, I'll answer the question for you. You need to change. Well, actually, I'm not the one answering that. Jesus is the one. Look with me in Matthew chapter five, verse seventeen. Immediately on the heels of the you are salt and light, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I want to stop there for a second. Don't lose your place. But I'll stop there for a second to make this point. What Jesus has just said is to that gathered group of people, we're going to talk about them in just a second, but to that gathered group of probably mostly Jewish people, he has said, your religious tradition, no, that's not right, your religious tradition, foundation is not the issue here. He said all of the law, now you notice I made the distinction between the law that's the foundation and their tradition. Their tradition is a whole other thing. Jesus will be killed because of their traditions. But the law itself the law is not the Ten Commandments, contrary to what some authors these days want to tell us. The law is that body of material that we find in the Old Testament, particularly in the first five books, mostly uh, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is the gathered law of God that he gave to the children of Israel and said, this is how you will live and pattern your lives. Jesus comes and he's very clear to say, I'm not here to do away with that stuff. As a matter of fact, not only am I not here to do away with it, anybody who does away with it is going to be facing judgment. That's what those verses say, basically, that we read. But here's the change now. Jesus takes them a step further in verse 20 when he says... For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus does now is he takes the body of stuff that is the basis for their whole religious system, he holds it up, and then he says, now all of the religionists of your day, the seminary professors, I'm going to put it in our terms, the seminary professors, the pastors, those big talking heads in your established religion that everybody goes and buys their books and watches their TV shows and goes to their conferences, the religionists of your day, he's talking to them, remember, as much as the law is valid, they are not. In other words, Jesus said, something has to change here. Because if it doesn't, if your righteousness doesn't go beyond theirs, you don't have a chance as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. So I want to call us today to what I call cutting-edge Christianity. Because I'm working from a fundamental assumption. By the way, I have about eight minutes left now and I'm almost through the introduction. I'm working from this basic assumption and that is that what we're called to do as the people of God is not working very well. And the reason I say that is I look out at a society around us that continues to thumb its nose at a holy God. We talked about and sang about holiness in here. Great reminder of what we're to be about. But my question is, is that really what we're about? And before we get too locked up on the we're, remember that we're a compilation of the I'm. If I'm not about holiness and you're not about holiness, then we're not about holiness. Doesn't that follow? And so the world at large, I think, desperately looking for light and salt, looks to the church and what they see doesn't seem to communicate well. I'm always try to establish that a little bit more as we go forward in my next seven minutes now. So now let's come back to the passage very quickly. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus now um, gives us, I think, a good pattern for us to make the change that we should. I want you to hear this, so don't get too locked up on the seven minutes. I'm not going to keep giving you a countdown on now what six minutes, but I will tell you this. What I'm doing today is introducing now the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been off of it because of Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's, and now I want to come back to it and pick up this study as we move forward. And verse 20 is the heart and soul of the entire sermon that Jesus gives, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the whole thing hinges on this one thesis statement, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, he says, things have to change. The system that you're under is not sufficient to get the job done. And what we'll find as we go forward is Jesus now, starting next week, we'll start taking these six statements, antitheses, scholars call them, where Jesus says, you've heard this But I'm telling you this, in other words, something's got to change. Six of those he'll do. And then in chapter 6, when we pick up, he'll start over and he'll give us the three basic pillars of Jewish piety. What those scribes and Pharisees were saying, this is how you be holy. Jesus is going to take those and systematically tear them apart and fulfill, which in this case means to fill full, what they had been hearing. So today we just kind of start the journey, but I don't want us to start the journey until we come back to the basic truth that says it's very possible that you and I, we, need to change our religious systems. I want you to look how Jesus does it. What is Christ- cutting-edge Christianity? Cutting-edge Christianity is that which reaches beyond the walls of the church and makes a difference in the lives of people. And particularly in this case, I'm talking about non-churched people. But it doesn't have to be limited to them. It'll make a difference in your life when you pick up what Jesus is talking about here. So I want you to see that what cutting-edge Christianity requires, first of all, is engagement. Now, I'm not talking about as in getting married kind of engagement, although we'll get to that maybe. I'm talking about the kind of engagement that you'll see in about 20 minutes when you get home on the interior line of the Houston, Texas and the Baltimore Ravens. That's engagement. Human animals that are locked up in locker rooms all week long and they feed them raw meat so that on Sunday morning they can get out there and down in the trenches go at it so the little pencil neck running back can do his thing. The animals down on the line, when the ball snapped, when all of us, if they didn't have different colored jerseys, all you could see was a mass of human flesh. That's engagement. And in this case, I want you to notice the engagement that we find in this passage. First of all, Jesus engages their traditions. We've already talked about that at length this morning, so I'm not going to do a whole lot more to establish it. But he goes back to the law. He knows the law, as we're going to find all through Matthew's gospel, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus knows what they believe. Well, one of the reasons he knows that is because he's one of them. He's a Jew. He grew up in the system. He knew it. Oh, by the way, he also wrote it because he's God. So he's pretty familiar with their system. But he engages it. And he pulls it out and he knows it well enough to say, no, I'm not doing away with that. What I'm doing is taking you to a new level of that. So he engages their tradition. And let me just stop and make this very quick application at that point. One of the things that we must do if we're going to be successful, I don't really want the term successful, if we're going to be faithful in being what God called us to be, we're going to have to engage the truth. Now, I know that sounds kind of ridiculous. Yeah, duh, preacher. Don't have much time. Should you be talking about that? Absolutely. Because I believe churches are full of people who don't know the truth. Oh, they know truisms. I've talked before, and I'll talk more as we go forward, about bumper sticker theology, folk religion. God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> Well, the only thing you can really help yourself to is seconds at supper because you're not going to help yourself at the fundamental need, which is a Savior. But we adopt all kinds of little truism kind of statements that have enough truth to sound good. I'm reading a book right now. Several people in the church asked me about it, so I decided to read it. It just makes me mad. I don't know how else to say it. It just makes me mad that somebody would take Scripture and twist it and try to make the kind of argument that this... I started calling him a knucklehead. Um, This brother in Christ seems to want to make. Know the truth. How do you know the truth? Well, let me ask you. How did Jesus know the truth? I had the opportunity this morning to sit in on one of our Sunday school classes here do I want to tell you all the untruths that I heard in there. (laughs) No, that's not true. I absolutely loved being in there. And this is a heads up to the rest of you teachers, adult teachers. I'm going to be kind of working through it and sitting in on some of your classes. Not because I'm checking up on you. It's because I need Sunday school too. Right? And it's a good way for me to meet some people that maybe I don't get to meet. But I need Sunday school too. And I sat there as a student, not as the pastor, not as a preacher. And as I sat there listening to the truths of the particular psalm that that class was looking at, I was thinking to myself, man, the people who don't come to Sunday school, they're missing a wonderful opportunity to grow in the truth. So I hope you'll hear that. Let me just encourage you. I know you have to get up an hour earlier. That makes it almost like a regular weekday when you have to get up three hours earlier than Sunday. Know the truth. Jesus engages their traditions and he takes it to the point of the truth. The other thing that he does, and this is where I'm going to have to stop today, but Jesus also engages their society. Think for a moment who's with him up on that hillside. Now, chapter 5, verse 1, let me just read that for you and ask Spencer to get it together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, I want you to hear that. Go back sometime and read chapter 4, because what you'll find is Jesus had developed this following I mentioned earlier in this message, and as they're following him, at this point, Jesus kind of makes a decision, it seems. All right, it's time for us to get down and dirty with the reality. So he takes those people, his disciples go with him. We find the latter, the last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount, actually are editorial comments that Matthew gives us, that the people who were up there were amazed at what he taught. So let's think for a moment about who was up on that hillside with him. We find all through Scripture that there were those, verse 1 says that his disciples went with him. But looking in chapter 4, we find that all over that northern part of what we now call Israel, they would have called northern Galilee, all the way up into Syria, people were thronging to him because he was healing and he was teaching and he was different. So those people all follow him, I believe, up the side of that hill to that natural amphitheater and he sat down and he began to teach them. What I want you to hear from that is that all walks of people were there and Jesus takes the truth and he says, okay, let me give it to you. And he does it in terms that they would understand. We find Jesus teaching all through the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, using everyday stories that relate directly to who they were. He engages the truth, but he also engages society. And here's why I think we miss it as the 21st century church. Much of what we do as church people is we set up our services and we say to people who don't know Christ, y'all come. And then when they do come, we bring them into an atmosphere that often is so far removed from the reality of their lives that it's like me going to Mars and trying to figure out how the Martians might live. What is it about our society that bothers you today? You know, one of the things that bothers me about us in our society and our attempt to be salt and light is that we're taking a canned speech that might very well involve truth and we're taking it and we're force-feeding it to people who don't accept it as truth in the first place. You know these people. You go to work with these kind of people. Some of them are your family members. Maybe even some of us in here today are going, wait a minute, you're quick to call this stuff truth, preacher, but I'm not sure I believe that. I watched an ABC uh, 2020 program a number of years ago that was on hell. Their flagship part of that whole video article was a noted evangelical preacher who had been defrocked by his church group because he decided that the Bible really didn't teach there was a true hell. And he was celebrating the fact that in his opinion, the truth was there is no hell. Well, the ABC News people picked up on that. They loved that. It became the main part of that video expose. There is no hell. You know what's wrong with that? Everything's wrong with that. Because if people buy to that lie, then their eternity is solid in hell. The very thing they didn't believe about in the first place, it's convenient not to believe in hell, but to believe in heaven. You'd be a crazy person to say there's no heaven and yet believe there's a hell, but we can make the jump and say, well, sure, I don't want to believe there's a hell, but yeah, let's believe there's a heaven. All honey and no bees. Sorry, Mike. But the truth is, hell's real. But I want you to hear from this, that we live in a world, a society, especially in America, they don't believe that. So I can go out there and take my Bible, slap them upside the head with it, and say, this is truth. But if they don't believe it, what do we have? You know what we have? A religious standoff. So I want us to hear what Jesus is doing here. He comes fully engaged in the truth, fully engaged with these people, and then he takes them somewhere. That's where we're going. But for today, I'll come back to the question. How do you feel about change? The acid test for this sermon for you is, can you look at your life and evaluate it objectively and say, my life is making a difference in the life of other people for God's sake. If it's not, you need to change. Let's pray. Father, I know that this is a very confrontational kind of sermon. And as you reminded us, we don't... Like the change that we don't like. And usually, when it involves a change of lifestyle out of the norm, that's the kind we especially dislike. The truth is truth. Help us to follow you very closely, to listen for your voice, to have hearts that are bent towards obedience before we even hear. Where we have opted for that old-time religion that was good enough for everybody else instead of thinking today and instead of engaging the truth and engaging our culture and finding a way to pull those together for your sake forgive us is our prayer Father I pray even now that the truth of your word would be burning deep within us if there's anybody here who has bought into the lie of society and ultimately of the one who is the accuser. Satan who says, nah, you don't have to believe all that stuff. Father, there anybody here who doesn't know you on a personal level has accepted you as their personal Savior, I pray even now that you would make them so desperately miserable for you that they would jump at the chance for life. All of us are content and complacent at some point. And, Father, we acknowledge that. We confess it. We ask that you forgive us. Help us to be faithful in what you call us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.